Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, in the late 1940s, when Mao Zedong brought communism to China, there was this sense that this was going to usher in a better and new era. No longer would the emperor be in control, leading a a corrupt and nationalistic government, but the country was now for the people. And there was this excitement and hope about the change this would bring and the opportunities it would allow, allow for the people of China. And then you flash forward to the early 2000s and many were realizing that these communist leaders weren't providing the freer and better existence that they had expected. There was still corruption, there was a loss of the individual, a militant stamp against religion. So despite the fact that people had generally, in some ways, a better lifestyle in the sense of maybe more food, more clothing, um, financially richer, but there was still this deep longing for more. And Christianity, which had actually started on kind of the outskirts in among the poorer population on the outskirts of society, it began moving into the cities and among the elites because communism wasn't answering people's questions of meaning and purpose. There was this increased desire for freedom and human rights and spiritual nourishment. People wanted hope and wholeness. I think today in our society, we might feel some of these same things. You know, every election season, we get these same promises from our political leaders about a better and and stronger America, just to come to a place where that leader isn't able to solve all the problems. We still see homelessness and brokenness and addiction and, and poverty all around us in our society. And we've actually seen that many of our churches across the country are declining because what they're offering is not something that will produce real change. They're offering a a superficial, legalistic kind of faith. Throughout the pandemic, we've become less and less able to be certain about the things we were trying to find our certainty in. We've seen technology hacks and slower delivery services and, and other services that aren't able to be provided in the same way that we've always expected up to this point. The medical system seems to kind of be barely hanging on. There's this disenchantment we have with many of our systems and structures, but there's also a craving within for something greater. In our own lives, you know, we've seen, or maybe some of you have even experienced burnout. There's this great resignation. You know, people are leaving their jobs. People are wondering what's going on in their hearts. Anxiety is higher than ever. There's this mental health crisis. 
Families are struggling, and we're longing for hope, aren't we? We're longing for restoration and stability and wholeness. We're longing for home. You know, we're in this Advent series called Close to Home. And and when you think of a healthy and safe home environment, you think of security and rest, comfort and peace. Home is a place of healing and renewal. It's a place where we can thrive and grow. And it certainly doesn't feel like when we look at the world around us, or even when we look within ourselves, it doesn't always feel like home. And certainly not a place where all people can experience the stability and wholeness of home. But today, as we look at the scriptures, I believe we'll find a path to home. We're looking at a passage today that tells us to get ready, because something, or or rather someone, is coming who's going to usher in home. Someone is coming who's going to be able to deliver on his promises. A king who offers salvation, restoration, security, and freedom, and a home for all. So let's take a look at Luke chapter 3 today. And I'd invite you to stand with me as we read the scripture. Luke is the third gospel, the third book in the New Testament, and we'll look at that third chapter beginning in verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, The man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. 
He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. You may be seated. This passage introduces us to John. And John doesn't really seem to be all that significant. If you noticed at the start of chapter 3, you've got all these guys with big names and titles. Pontius Pilate and Caesar and the Tetrarchs and the priests. And then here we come to John, son of Zechariah, who's hanging out in the wilderness. You know, he's not in the center of the city. He's not in the hub of society where you'd think this, an important figure like this would be. But God has given John a message. And just as God proclaimed his message in the Old Testament through prophets, God is doing this once again through John. It had been about 400 years of silence from God and the prophets. But we now have the word of God coming once again, being proclaimed by John, who says, prepare the way of the Lord. Get ready. He says, get ready because someone significant is coming. Now, in the ancient world, when an important king was going to be coming to a village, he would send messengers ahead of him to tell the townspeople to prepare the way, to prepare the road. A big part of that was because the roads, many of them were not paved at that time. So, of course, through uh, travel with walking and animals and wagons, there'd be big ruts that would develop. Or if you'd come to kind of a boulder in the road, you'd just have to make your way around it. Or if there was a rut, you just sort of push through and find a way over that. And so uh, they'd try to make a straighter, easier, less bumpy road uh, in order to prepare for the king and all his majesty and his entourage. So when John is announcing to prepare the way, he's not just talking about boulders and dips here, he's talking about mountains and valleys. Well, this must be someone really significant who's coming. And it says in verse 6 that all flesh, all peoples will see the salvation of God. So we're no longer just talking about a political promise from a king who's going to be an earthly king who will be coming, but it's a life-altering salvation. It's something at the deepest level that will be changed. There's a promise of restoration for all people, for all society. It's not just something physical, but also something spiritual. So we're seeing already that if we want true and meaningful, deep change and restoration in the world, that is actually going to start in our lives. And we need to prepare the way. And how do we do that? Well, this passage tells us how we can pursue this beautiful, never-before-experienced kind of home. First, preparing the way requires repentance. Preparation requires repentance. We talked a little bit about this last week, but I want to build on this idea. Verse 3 tells us that John was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And we'll come back a bit to this idea of baptism. But when we think of repentance, it can be this kind of uncomfortable term, right? It can, it can be scary because it's saying that there's something I've been doing 
or enjoying or, or something that feels comfortable that I actually need to turn away from and turn instead to the Lord and following him. And it sounds like this negative thing. Okay, here comes the church again telling me that I can't have fun and I need to follow all their rules. But repentance is actually about recognizing that there's a king who's bigger than we are. A king who might actually know how to give the security and forgiveness and wholeness that we long for. Repentance is about a change of heart, not just a change of action. It's about being open to a true deliverance from God and being open to what's actually good news. You know, we're told in verse 18 that John's message was good news. But at first, it doesn't really sound like it, does it? I mean, John is calling the crowds a brood of vipers. He's saying things like the axe is already at the bottom of the tree, ready to cut it down. He's saying he's got a winnowing fork in his hand, going to be threshing up the wheat, and all that chaff that falls is going to be burned away. These are images of judgment. So how is that good news? We've got to dig into this a bit. Why does John call the crowd a brood of vipers? Well, John knows that our human tendency is to question the king. He knows there's always a snake, right? I mean, viper is just another way to say snake. And we know of a snake from way back in the Genesis creation story. There's a snake, and what did he do? He convinced Adam and Eve that they should question God. He said, are you really sure you can trust God? You know, here we think in this passage, are you sure you can really trust the king that John says is coming? Maybe you don't really need to do anything to prepare. You're Jewish. You've got Abraham. You know, you've been participating in the rituals. You've got the blood lineage. You don't really need to repent, do you? See, this is what the snake does. And this is why John calls it out. There were apparently some people who were saying that they wanted to be baptized by John, but they were holding on to their religious affiliation. So they were looking to their Jewish tradition to be what would really be their salvation. And he says, no, don't think that your lineage or your religious ritual or your status or reputation don't think that those things mean that you're in and you're right and you're ready. That doesn't mean you have the salvation of God. These are just external things. If you really want to experience true change in the world, it starts with a change in your heart. It starts by trusting the king. I think we can do this sometimes, you know, where we listen to the voice of the snake. We give in to the temptation that rather than needing to completely surrender our lives to the king, he'll just kind of fit into our plan. So we say things or think things like, well, you know, there's this one area of my life that might not be exactly in line with what God really wants for me. Maybe, you know, maybe there's this kind of subtle anger issue that, that rears its ugly head every once in a while, or only a few people really see it, or I kind of have it under control, or, you know, maybe it's something that we're looking at on our computers when we're by ourselves, or maybe there's something else in our hearts, like a, a judgment toward people who, 
you know, think differently about things or maybe even are responding differently to the pandemic than we are. Something that's in our hearts that isn't aligning completely with God's heart. But what we can say to ourselves is that, you know, it's not really a big deal or we just ignore it, hide it, try to cover it up. And, and convince ourselves of the good things we're doing. Well, you know, I made some cookies for my neighbors. I'm involved in, in helping at church. I'm participating in this community, uh, you know, if, if outreach event. There's a community organization I volunteer for. We can cover up or hide or ignore these things that are in our hearts. It's like, you know, if we were to say, as we're preparing the road for the king, we see this huge valley, you just try to cover it over with a blanket and hope that'll be sufficient that when the chariots come along to get them across. Well, of course, that's not going to hold up, right? Or maybe we say to ourselves something like this, you know, I've, I've got this good thing, and what, what truly is a good thing, like my family that I'm investing in and, and pouring into uh, pouring my love into, or, or maybe this relationship that I'm really trying to work hard to make better, um, or a job that I'm doing well at that's giving financial security and, and I'm being rewarded for the work that I'm doing. Or, you know, I've got my schedule that helps me keep track of all these good things that I'm doing. But sometimes what we can do with these good things is make them into something more important than the king. We can say, well, God, you can kind of work within what I'm doing, right? You know, I, I can keep doing things the way I want to do them. I can, I can stick in my comfort zone. I can stay around the people that I like to be around. You can work within that, right? It's like saying to the king, instead of preparing the road for him, I'll just show him my road map. You know, then he'll be able to get around the potholes. You know, when a significant guest comes, we go out of our way to get things ready. You know, we go across town to the store where we can get the special foods. We rearrange the furniture a little bit if we need to. We make space in our schedule to make sure we can welcome that special guest. So when the king of kings comes and all his host, we can't just say, here, take a look at my roadmap. Or here, here's a blanket to cover that valley. Our lives must be completely reordered around him. We must submit to the way of the king. So what the gospel, the good news says, is that our map isn't good enough. Our attempts at covering up those valleys with the blanket aren't sufficient. Nothing outside of God will lead to that ultimate restoration we long to see. We can never do enough to bring the wholeness and home for which we long. See, the good news of the gospel that John is proclaiming is that first we are more broken and sinful than we ever dared believe. Isn't that good news? Aren't you glad you came to church today to hear this message? <laughs> How broken and messed up we are? Is that good news? I, I think there's actually kind of a freedom in that. Isn't there? I mean, I know for me, I have this tendency to think I can fix everything myself, but actually I can't. We can't fix it all ourselves. We, you know, nothing within our own strength, our own energy, our own good will truly bring lasting and deep change to the world. There's kind of a relief in that, 
isn't there? I mean, I'm not actually able in myself to solve all the problems of the world, and that's okay. That's actually good news. But the reason that's good news, because if we stop there, we can enter into a place of, of dis despair, depression. But the reason it's good news is because there's a second part to this, and we have to keep these together. We can't stop there. We have to say, not only are we more broken and sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe, but we are more deeply loved than we ever dared imagine. No, we can't fix everything by ourselves, but there's someone who loves us so much, and he can, and he will. We don't have enough good and power within ourselves to make things right, but there's someone who loves us and who does have enough good and power to make all things right. So repentance is good news then, because it's submitting ourselves to a good king. You might be familiar with the part of the story of the Chronicles of Narnia when Susan is talking to the beaver about Aslan. She finds out Aslan is a lion. And she says, oh, I thought he was a man. Is he safe? You know, I feel uh, nervous about meeting a lion. And Mr. Beaver responds, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. He's good. He's the king, I tell you. Repentance is hard. Repentance is scary. Repentance is coming to terms with that brokenness and sin in our hearts. But it's not so bad when we know we're turning away from our sin toward a good king. We're submitting our lives completely to a loving God who will bring the most complete salvation. Because whenever we repent, we're always met with God's grace. And it's only when we repent that we're able to freely receive that gift of forgiveness and healing and restoration. We mentioned briefly that John was proclaiming a baptism of repentance. So he actually was baptizing people, literally immersing them in water. Now scholars have various thoughts about exactly what baptism signified and how it was really being functioning at this time in the ancient world. But there is a general sense that there's probably some alignment with this concept of uh, ritual cleansing and purification. So those who are coming to be baptized were recognizing this opportunity to come clean. They were identifying with that first part of the, of the gospel that we said, uh, that you're more broken than you ever really dared believe. They were coming to terms with the fact that they no longer needed to put on this kind of pretense or mask of something that they weren't, that they could come as they really were. But something that seems to be unique about uh, what John was doing in his baptism is that he was administering it. Because in these purification rituals, someone would essentially just give themselves a bath as a way of saying that we were dirty. Um, but what John is doing in administering the baptism is signifying that this is something we need to receive. We can't cleanse ourselves. Our salvation can only come at the hand of another. And this is that second part of the gospel, how deeply loved we are. When we open our hearts to him and admit our need, he pours out his forgiveness and grace. Okay, so we're seeing here how deep and lasting change starts in our hearts. 
If we want restoration of our society and a building of this beautiful home for all, then it starts with our preparing a way for the king in our hearts through repentance and receiving his gift of grace. But this change of heart does lead to action. So preparing the way requires repentance, but it also requires reform. See, this message of preparing the way and making the path straight, you know, making the mountains low and raising the valleys, it speaks to a world where inequities are banished, where injustice is made right, where all people have all they need for flourishing. But this doesn't come because we try really hard to do good and make it happen. It comes because the good king is bringing salvation and restoring all things. And this good king invites us to be part of his work of reform. We can only truly and purely be part of that, though, when we are changed at the heart. Charles Spurgeon tells this little parable of a king and a carrot. So in the story, there's a gardener who grew this huge carrot. And because he loved his king, the gardener decided he was going to bring the carrot to the king and present it to him as a gift, as as a token of his love for the king. So the king, when he brought the carrot, he discerned the heart of the gardener and realized, yes, he really didn't want anything in return. He simply did love the king. And so uh, the, the king decided to gift the gardener with a bunch of land. And a nobleman in the court saw this exchange and thought, well, if the gardener got all that land for that carrot, well, what would I get if I brought my fine horse? So he took his best horse to the king and he said, receive this as a token of my love. But the king discerned his heart and he he knew he wasn't actually giving him the horse because of his heart of love, so he sent the nobleman away. And when the king saw kind of the confused look on the nobleman's face, he said to him, the gardener's gift was truly a gift out of love. You're just trying to make a profit. The gardener gave me the carrot, but you gave yourself the horse. So Spurgeon says, as an interpretation of this parable, if you know God offers you his salvation freely and that there's nothing to do but to accept the perfect righteousness of his son, then you can feed the hungry and clothe the naked just for the love of God and for the love of people. But if you think you're getting salvation in return for these deeds, then it's yourself you are feeding, yourselves you are clothing. John teaches the people in verse 8 to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And and we see in verses 10 to 14 how different people are asking John what they should do in light of their baptism. So he tells them, you know, whoever has clothing or food to share it. Uh, Don't cheat people out of their money. Don't threaten people or falsely accuse them. Be content with what you have. These are very ordinary, everyday good things. He wants them to engage in acts of compassion and justice and healing, restoration. He wants them to bear the fruit that we'd expect to see from someone who's been changed by grace. So what does this look like for us? You know, it starts with aligning our heart with our actions. 
If we've truly been changed by God's grace and received his forgiveness and have turned away from our wrongdoing and our sinful thoughts and actions, attitudes, then what we'll produce is actions that naturally are full of love and kindness and understanding and grace. And as we do this, I think, you know, probably we'll actually see more areas in our lives where maybe we need to go back to that first step of repentance. But I think we'll also notice more and more opportunities to participate in reform. So, you know, maybe when you come across that neighbor or coworker who maybe is a little different from you, or maybe you even feel threatened by them, or maybe it's just someone who's kind of on the outskirts, um, you might think, how can I enter into that space to work towards building up that road, you know, filling in that valley or bringing down that mountain? Or maybe it's seeking to make your literal home, your house, a place of safety and love. You know, it doesn't matter what the size of your house is or how well it's decorated for Christmas. Again, it's what's in your heart. Are you willing to welcome people into your home and into your life? To share a meal, to extend hospitality and listen and engage with others. You know, what would it look like if you said, every month I'm going to invite someone into my home, maybe someone who's not even from Grantham Church or someone I don't normally connect with, here when I'm at church? What would that look like to build up those relationships? What would it look like in our community to participate in God's work of bringing wholeness and flourishing? Maybe it's participating in some level in in local government or attending a school board meeting with the heart of bringing, extending welcome and grace and and a positive attitude there. You know, I'm grateful um, that our church is growing in partnerships with a lot of other local churches in the area, and there's some really neat things that some other local churches are doing to serve our community. So things like engaging in foster care, welcoming refugees. I know one effort that a few churches are doing together is uh, tutoring some elementary age kids who are in oftentimes homes that where it's tough, where their grades are suffering, and they're meeting with these kids to provide tutoring, and there's actually proven uh, statistics showing how the students' grades are increasing, and there's uh, better self-worth and, and all that. And there's actually a waiting list, though, for children who want to receive this tutoring from members of churches, just other local churches right around us. So maybe that's an area where the Lord might prompt you and say, yeah, that's how you can participate in my work of reform and making a home for all. You know, and of course, our church has several ministry partners who are doing this hard work of repairing the rough roads in our society. So there's countless ways that we can participate in this. But what is it for you? Where might God be asking you to reorder your life around him and prioritize what's most important from his perspective? Where are you noticing a crooked path or or a rough spot in our society or in the people around you where you could enter in and be a, a conduit, as we talked about last week, of God's salvation in the world? Where can you speak truth in love? Where can you cast a light of hope or point people to Jesus rather than pointing people to yourself? 
We do all this out of the grace we've received from God. It's not our own good that we're putting on display, but it's the good king that we want to lift up and make known. This is exactly what John did. Did you notice in that, the passage where people started wondering if he actually was the Christ, if John the Baptist was, was the Messiah? Well, he immediately puts the kibosh on that idea, and he's always pointing away from himself and to Christ. He says, no, actually the true Messiah, the one who is coming, is so great, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. It was, you know, the slave who would untie sandals and wash the feet of their master. So he's saying, I'm not even worthy to be the slave of the king. John demonstrates the humility required for repentance and reform. He recognizes that he, like all of us, can be part of God's plan of salvation and can extend hope and healing and restoration, but that he's not the source of that. The one to come is the one who would bring true cleansing. The one to come is that good and perfect king who knows what's best for his subjects. This king didn't stay on his throne and judge from afar, but he actually came down and he put on a crown of thorns. This king would walk the rough, rough, crooked, bumpy way to Calvary. This king wouldn't take the road to the center of town where we'd expect a king to be, but he'd follow the road that would lead to exile, to judgment on our behalf, where he would take on the punishment for sin that we deserve. This king, the one to come, would prepare the way for us to be in restored relationship with the Father so that we can dwell in a home where we have the freedom of forgiveness and the security that we are deeply loved. We can dwell with him in the certainty that he will establish a home of justice and peace for all. And as his family, as his children, he uses us to build that home. We've talked some in this series about how we're living in this tension of the, the already and the not yet. The king has come, but his kingdom hasn't completely come to fruition. Howard Thurman, who was an author and theologian, a civil rights leader, who lived within this tension and, and understood that it was Jesus who would make all things right, he wrote a poem called The Work of Christmas. And I think this speaks to how we're to respond to the coming of Christ at Christmas. The poem goes, When the song of the angels is stilled, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and princes are home, when the shepherds are back with their flock, the work of Christmas begins. To find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, to rebuild the nations, to bring peace among others, to make music in the heart. When we, when we receive Christ and surrender to the true King, He works through us to bring about home, a home where all can experience healing and grace and freedom and peace and salvation. Let's pray. 
God, we thank you that we can trust you as the true king. Thank you that you came to prepare the way that we couldn't even prepare sufficiently enough for you. Thank you that when we recognize our need, you meet us with grace. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to, to see those places in our hearts where we need to turn to you. Help us, Lord, to set aside our roadmap and to look to you and how you want us to participate in the work you're doing to bring restoration in our own hearts and in our world. Open our eyes to see ways around us where we can serve in humility and where we can love and where we can speak truth and hope and joy. And we thank you that we, we can trust that you in all your goodness will fully bring to fruition your kingdom when you return. We long for that day and we ask that you would come, Lord Jesus. Come, bring that hope and wholeness and restoration that we long for. We offer ourselves to you and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.